Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Order, order. From the 15th to the 28th of June, 1972, a trial was held at the Old Bailey before the judge, Mr. Justice Bean. The crime? The attempted assassination of the former Iraqi Prime Minister, General Abda al-Naif, and the wounding of his wife, Lamia. The evidence stated that three men had entered a lift, arrived at the sixth floor, and exited at the same time that the shots were fired. Two of the men were disguised and brandishing guns. The other was unarmed and casually dressed. With the unidentified gunman having fled, remaining behind, a third man was arrested and tried with the attempted shooting of ex-Prime Minister General Al-Naif. But if he was an assassin or co-conspirator, he was certainly an unlikely choice. The accused was Yahya Kazim, a fellow Iraqi and respected writer and lawyer, who was a recent friend and business acquaintance to the general. The trial was unusual, as with the prosecution stating, there was no suggestion that Mr. Kazim fired any shots or had any pistols or ammunition on him, but that he was party to the attempted assassination. Leaving the judge to ask, how do you recognize an assassin? And the jury with a very unusual quandary to decide if Mr. Kazim was one of the three men or whether he was just an innocent bystander. What follows is a dramatization of the events based on the declassified police investigation files and the eyewitness testimony of those who were there that day. Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is about Abda al-Razak Saeed al-Naif, an exiled Iraqi national living in the West End who found himself the target of several assassinations. And yet, as high up as these orders may have been to kill him, his death may have been left in the hands of a most unlikely man. 
Murder Mile contains grisly details, which may disturb any delicate puppets, as well as realistic sounds, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 35 The Several Assassinations of the Exiled Iraqi. Today, I'm standing in Bryanston Square, W1, two streets north of Oxford Street, two streets east of Edgware Road, and two tube stops west of Soho. If this area sounds familiar, that's because, situated on the north side of the square, on the junction of Wyndham Place and Montague Place, there once stood an air raid shelter where Evelyn Margaret Hamilton became the first victim of the Blackout Ripper. With his private garden surrounded by several seven-storey Edwardian mansion houses, so anonymous they can only be differentiated by subtle changes in their brown bricks, white windows and black wrought iron gates. This square is so exclusive and yet deliberately discreet with so many embassies nearby, it's highly likely that the bin men are bugged, the street sweeper's a secret sniper, each concierge has top secret clearance, the milkman's been knighted, the homeless are only here by royal appointment, and even a posh poodle doing a doggy poo doodle on a path is protected by diplomatic immunity. And with me, not being an oily oligarch, a Saudi slimeball, a disgraced duke, or an aristocratic bit of hoity-toity, who's under house arrest as the judge deemed him too posh for prison. The second I think of setting foot in their private garden, alarms will wail, floodlights will flash, and six black-suited men with Uzis will hurl me into a holding cell. I'll be frisked, stripped and waterboarded, tortured, strangled, and chopped into a rather fine pâté. As in their eyes, anyone who doesn't have a diamond-encrusted Rolex, a Beamer painted by Picasso, an aversion to paying tax, a dubious human rights record, and isn't a regular donor to the Tory party, is clearly suspicious. And although this square was once the home of socialite Wallace Simpson, the American divorcee who caused King Edward VIII to abdicate, and Osman Barnes, the man who literally gave the whole of India to Queen Victoria as a gift. It was here, outside Flat 21 of 35 Bryanston Square, that Abda al-Naif, an exiled Iraqi national with a death sentence on his head, faced a very unlikely firing squad. On Friday the 18th of February 1972, at a little after 2pm, a sweetly smiling, smartly dressed and deeply caring middle-class Iraqi couple were shopping amongst Edgware Road's noisy, excitable and chaotic Middle Eastern bustle of shawarma bars, 
shisha cafes, delis, tailors and coffee houses. Being home to many Arabian immigrants since the late 19th century, regardless of where their roots lay, whether in the Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Israel or Egypt, although this half-mile stretch of Edgware Road is often dubbed Little Beirut, it's always been a place of peace, safety and anonymity. Being five foot nine inches tall, with black wavy hair, thin brown eyes, and a lantern jaw, 38-year-old Abda was the epitome of an Iraqi businessman, as dressed in a tailored suit and shiny shoes, with a crisp shirt and tie. Although he had the heft of a man with a military background, with a thin, uneasy grimace about his lips, he had the face of a politician. But by those who knew him, he was widely respected. Side by side, Abda walked with 34-year-old Lamia, his beloved wife of 16 years and mother to their five children, the youngest of which, Ali, they'd dropped off at the local nursery. And although she was an unassuming little lady, with long dark hair, beautiful eyes and an intoxicating smile, Having followed her husband through thick and thin, she was his strength, his confidant, and his soulmate. And as much as they resembled an average middle-class Iraqi couple who'd relocated to London in the early 1970s, they were anything but. Born in the Iraqi city of Fallujah, 43 miles west of Baghdad, on the 18th of June, 1934, Abda al-Razak Saeed al-Naif was raised in an affluent middle-class family, the second oldest of six siblings, and educated with traditional values, religious upbringing, and a passionate patriotism for his country. As a confident, polite, and driven young man, aged 16, Abda enrolled in the Iraqi Military Academy. Being eager to rise through the ranks of the army, after three years of intensive training, Abda was promoted to second lieutenant, graduated with a degree from the State College of Baghdad, and being both a successful soldier and political thinker, with Iraq being our ally in the years after World War II, Abda was trained by British intelligence at an undisclosed military base in Uckfield, Sussex. By 1964, Abda was appointed Deputy Head of Iraqi Military Intelligence. By 1965, he was advisor to the Iraqi President, Abdul Salam Arif. And by 1968, Abda was promoted to General, all by the age of 34. By 1968, with the Cold War heating up, as the US and USSR battled for supremacy in both the space race and the arms race, with the government of Iraq leaning towards communism, on the 17th of July 1968, Abda initiated a bloodless coup, seized control of the state, and appointed General Ahmed Hassan al-Bakri of the Ba'ath Party as president, and himself as the 39th Prime Minister of Iraq. Dubbed the White Revolution, this bloodless coup 
was seen as indicative of the peaceful coalition government Abda had created, with al-Bakri as an Arab socialist and himself as an independent. But after just 15 days as Prime Minister, President al-Bakri and several Ba'ath Party conspirators, one of whom was the future Iraqi president, Saddam Hussein, had Abda arrested. Eager to keep up the pretense of a peaceful transition, al-Bakri had Abda ejected from Iraq, exiled to Rambat, and fearing for his life, was forced to take up the powerless position as the Iraqi ambassador to Morocco. One month later, having been shipped off to Switzerland to act as the Iraqi minister for Swiss foreign affairs, Abda was warned that the Ba'ath Party were plotting to have him killed. As authorities in Switzerland were unable to offer him protection, with his escape bankrolled by a wealthy Iraqi ally, Sheikh Mullalal Balassim al-Yassin, Abda, Lamia and their five children fled to London on the 15th of September 1969 and moved into the safety of Flat 21 at 35 Bryanston Square. It was here they hoped to live a normal life, far from al-Bakri, the Ba'ath Party and Iraqi politics. But living in a city surrounded by strangers, with a death sentence hanging over his head, he would never be sure who he could trust when he opened the door. And his faith would soon be tested. Born in the Iraqi city of Mosul on the 10th of October 1914, being bright, erudite and political, in 1934, aged 20, 58-year-old Yahya Kazim graduated from the Baghdad Law Facility with a degree in law, set up his own legal practice and later became Assistant Secretary to the Baghdad Council of Ministers, legal advisor to the Iraqi Railway, editor of his own left-wing Arab newspaper called Ashab, and was a fervent opponent to the Ba'ath Party. After the coup d'etat, on the 14th of July 1958, Kazim was arrested by the new Ba'athist regime and his newspaper was confiscated and ordered to produce the newspaper Al-Gamori, a Ba'athist newspaper whose editor was a leading Ba'athist. Seeking a better and safer life for his family, by 1971, as a writer, a lawyer and a married man with two grown-up sons, Kazim lived at number 4 Hyde Park Place, a nine-minute walk from Bryanston Square. Abda's trusted friend, Sheikh al-Yassin, the Arab businessman who had bankrolled Abda's escape, exile, and had financed the education of his five children, reluctantly introduced Abda to Kazim one year prior. It was later said that this was regarding the production of a book on the modern history of Iraq. Being a polite and patient man, burdened by a desire to never cause offence, Abda agreed to a brief meeting with Kazim in the safety of Sheikh al-Yassin's Kensington office. And as they said goodbye, he considered the matter closed. (laughs) 
what happened over the next few weeks and months can only be speculated at, as being deeply suspicious of anyone he didn't trust. Living under constant fear of a death sentence, the general knew that he was an obvious target for assassins, that the smartest way to lure him out was by using a friend as bait, and he could never be sure if his friends had ulterior motives. What follows is based on the various eyewitness statements as used in evidence at the Old Bailey. It started with phone calls, sometimes weekly, sometimes daily, sometimes nightly, and always on the end of the phone was Kazim, pestering Abda for more meetings to discuss the eventual overthrow of the Ba'ath Party regime and the exiled general's glorious return to power as the rightful Prime Minister of Iraq. None of which Abda even wanted. But still Kazim droned on and on and on. And then came the meetings. Endless meetings with a never-ending slew of nameless people. As Kazim waffled on about Abda's impending rise to power as the leader of an anti-Bath party revolution, which Kazim claimed to have already mustered the support of powerful allies, such as the Jordanian Prime Minister, the Shah of Persia, the Iranian Minister for Foreign Affairs, and King Faisal of Saudi Arabia. And yet as much as Abda politely tried to persuade the nervous little lawyer that he had no plans at all to reignite the Iraqi revolution, to destabilise the Ba'ath Party, and that he only cared for his family's safety... Kazim remained persistent and droned on and on and on. A few weeks prior to the assassination plot, Abda had grown deeply suspicious of Kazim's questioning, as what began as polite pleasantries before a tedious barrage of business talk soon felt more like he was deliberately fishing for information about the minutiae of Abda's daily routine. Although maybe, Yaya was simply excited to begin writing and researching the book. Early December 71, Abda received a series of strange and silent calls from public phone boxes to his home phone. But on every occasion, the second he'd pick up, they'd hang up. Was this a coincidence? Or were they connected to the upcoming events? Late December 1971, Abda would later state that Kazim had organised a meeting between Abda and Sadiq al-Bassam, a supposedly high-profile Iraqi merchant and staunch opponent of the Ba'ath Party. And yet, as urgent as their meeting was, very little was said, what was said was vague, and the very next day, the merchant had vanished. January 1972, having bumped into Kazim on George Street, a quiet residential road one street south of Bryanston Square, Kazim told Abda of the rumour that he was being protected by Persian bodyguards and that he carried a gun. And in a momentary lapse of judgement, Abda denied both and opened his jacket to prove it. February 1972, Abda would later state that Kazim had organised yet another urgent meeting, 
only this time with Aga Jafar, an Iraqi businessman who Abda had already met just weeks before. And yet, as pointless as the meeting was, Kazim's mind wasn't on business or politics or even Iraq. Instead, he steered the conversation towards more trivial matters about Abda's life. As a solid judge of character, Lamia, Abda's wife, instantly took dislike to Kazim. And being desperate never to share the same space as such a devious and weasley little man, she asked Abda never to invite him to their home. Or if he had to, she would be elsewhere. That afternoon, as if the city's decrepit old sewers had been blocked by a steamy, stinking cesspool of human waste, a bad smell returned to 35 Bryanston Square. And dressed in a crumpled grey raincoat, a tatty brown suit, and a battered grey trilby, Kazim slinked up the stone stairs, hung by the mansion block's black front door, and buzzed the intercom of Flat 21. With a crackle of static, Abda answered, Hello. But with this being the early 1970s, an era long before video intercoms, this call was strictly audio only, and having no idea who it was, the general let out an audible groan when he heard the nasal whine of, Abda, it's Kazim. Abda was too tired for this, too fed up, too bored, and too frustrated. In essence, their conversation broke down like this. Uh, Abdad, is Kazim? Yes. We, we must have a meeting. It's urgent. About what? Uh, things. Calm down. Uh, we'll go to the Portman Hotel. Have coffee, have tea, my treat. We? Who's this we? We! You, me, and some some people. You must come. At which, feeling uncomfortable by the vagueness of the details, and with his patience truly tested, Abda replied, No. A long silence ensued, and although Abda couldn't be certain, he swore he heard the scuffle of feet and the mutter of frustrated voices as Kazim piped up with, Come on down here then, we can talk here. But even from all the way up on the sixth floor, Abda smelled a rat. No, Abda replied. I think I won't. I'm busy. Uh, Maybe next week, okay? But Kazim said nothing. There was another crackle of static. Another mutter, another scuffle, followed by a series of stuttering statements, as Kazim insisted that what he had to tell Abda was vital, urgent, and too secret to be said over the intercom. And knowing that this persistent pest would buzz about his ears like a blood-hungry mosquito, with Lamia, his wife, being out, and with an air of reluctance, Abda invited him up. For an interminably long minute, through the spy hole of Flat 21, 
Abda hesitantly watched as the needle of the sixth floor lift slowly crept up from ground floor to first to second to third to fourth to fifth and then to sixth. Behind his thick wooden door as the art deco gates of the lift spread aside into the hall, Abda spied the solitary shambling mess of Kazim. His wrinkled face grimacing an awkward grin as his wizened old hand knocked on the door, which Abda cautiously and reluctantly opened. For fifteen minutes, they sat, sipped tea and chatted. Nothing urgent cropped up, nothing important was discussed. And once again, Abdur denied that he had any political plans, any revolutionary ambitions, and simply wanted to live his life with his family in peace. And with that, Kazim wished him well and left. Having lived in constant fear of being killed for the last four years, maybe the stress had got the better of him, Abdur had thought. Maybe he was seeing threats where there weren't any. As if the Iraqi Ba'ath Party were going to send an assassin. Why would they send Kazim? The idea was ludicrous. Wednesday the 17th of February 1972 at 7pm. Abda received a phone call. Abda, it's Kazim. Yes. We must have a meeting. It's urgent. What about? That... things. What things? Just things. Too secret to say over the phone. And so, it was agreed that they would meet. The next day, at 4pm, in Abda's flat. On Friday the 18th of February 1972... At a little after 2pm, a sweetly smiling, smartly dressed and deeply caring middle-class Iraqi couple, known locally as Abda and Lamia, strolled along the chaotic bustle of Little Beirut on the Edgware Road. Their senses tantalised by the sharp tang of freshly brewed coffee, the fruity waft of shisha pipes and the spitting spice of lamb shawarma as excitable cafe owners lured prospective patrons in with the promise of falafel, baklava, kofta, manakif, grilled halloumi, fatouche, and a delicacy of Iraq, mazgouf, a slowly cooked carp seasoned with lemon and pickles. And as much as Lamia inhaled those beautiful familiar smells from her homeland, Abda's eyes and ears were elsewhere. Was it his imagination? Or was he being watched? Was he being followed? Or was he seeing threats where there weren't any? He looked at his watch. It was 3pm. He'd have to head home for his meeting with that irritant, Kazim. On Friday the 18th of February 1972, at 3.30pm, Abda, 
Is Kazim? Yes. Our meeting! 4 p.m. In my flat. I haven't forgotten. And then there was a pause. Mm, let's, let's meet on the ground floor. You come down. Down? Why? I, I'm worried about the lift. What if there's a power cut? There's no power cut. What if it's broken? I just used it. It's not broken. What if it breaks? Use the stairs. And with his patience, wearing very thin, Abda said something to the effect of, Here, 4pm. Be here or don't. At 3.40pm, Kazim exited 4 Hyde Park Place and took a brisk 9-minute walk over Edgware Road to Bryanston Square. At 10 minutes to 4 on Friday the 18th of February 1972, Kazim slinked up the stone stairs, hung by the mansion block's black front door, and buzzed the intercom of Flat 21. With a sharp crackle of static, Abda answered, Hello? Abda, is Kazim? Hearing a slight scuffle, Abda asked, Are you alone? With a nervous stutter, Kazim replied, Yes, alone. And with an electric buzz and a metal thunk, the black front door of 35 Bryanston Square opened. As Kazim entered the lift, beside him stood two men, described as of Middle Eastern appearance, early twenties, wearing raincoats with their collars up and hats covering their eyes. Which was most convenient for 72-year-old Millicent Harris, resident of Flat 8 on the second floor. As with her arms weighed down with shopping bags, one of the nice young men held the door open for her, and with a sense of good manners, often absent with today's youth. They let the lady into the lift first. As they stood there, side by side, Kazim, Millicent, and two highly trained Iraqi assassins. In one hand, they held black balaclavas, and in the other, 9mm Browning revolvers. With all four, squeezed into the slightly compact lift as the mysterious man nearest the panel prodded the button for the sixth floor Millicent politely asked second floor please but the man ignored her again she asked second floor please but once again he ignored her they all did which was odd as Kazim was fluent in English So believing these reprobates were either foreign, ignorant, or just rude, she jabbed at the button herself and scowled at the naughty men with her most withering look. On the sixth floor, Abda watched as the lift's needle stalled four floors below. Behind him, busy in the kitchen, Lamia prepared dinner. With Kazim closing in, normally she'd be out. But having finished her chores, and with no reason to leave, she stayed, 
as Abda promised to keep the meeting brief. Suddenly the needle of the sixth floor lift restarted and slowly crept up from the second floor to the third, to the fourth, to the fifth, and finally to the sixth. But Abda had no sense of trepidation. Kazim was more of an ass than an assassin, and the only thing he was likely to kill was time, air, and brain cells. But as the lift's Art Deco gates opened wide, and the solitary shambling miss of Kazim stepped out, he froze in fear. As unlike every time prior, the ever-cautious Abda wasn't peeping through the spy hole, waiting for the very last second to open the heavy wooden door. Instead, he was standing in front of it. As Kazim exited the lift, with their black baraclavas off and their revolvers not cocked, sensing his immediate danger, Abda bolted backwards and slammed the door shut as a volley of 9mm shots ripped through the door. Behind the splintered door of Flat 21, amongst the shrill screams and the choking tears, Lamia could be heard sobbing, My husband is killed! My husband is killed! As the assassins fled, their booted feet thundering down the stairs. But gripped with fear, Kazim stood motionless and stared. Hearing the shots, Ernest Taylor, the caretaker of 35 Bryanston Square, bravely attempted to grapple with the fleeing assassins. But with both men being young, fit and swift, they easily dodged past the elderly gent, dashed into the quiet residential street and disappeared forever. Kazim, always being a bastion of tact, telephoned and calmly asked, Lamia, is Kazim? What happened? Seeing blood pour from a bullet hole in her body and her husband slumped on the floor, she screamed, My husband is killed! You have killed my husband! And then promptly, he hung up. But the assassins were so inept that nobody had died. With the door slammed shut and unable to see their target, of those five shots fired, one hit the hall skirting board, one hit the bedroom door frame, two hit the door, and with all five shots entirely missing Abda, one bullet hits Lamia in the right shoulder. But after just two weeks in hospital, Lamia made a full recovery. Questioned by Police Sergeant Main a few moments after the shooting, with Kazim's demeanour calm, he stated he only wanted to say goodbye to the general before he left for America on a business trip. But when he was told that the general wasn't dead, he became excited, and when asked why by the police, he replied, you wouldn't understand. This is terrible. I am a dead man. At the trial, 
Mr. Justice Bean stated, In the web of intrigue that concerns Iraqi affairs, you would lose your way in a search for a motive. There's no way of telling a would-be killer by his appearance. Even asking the jury, I wonder how many assassins you have met in your time. How many of you would have recognized, as killers, many of the more infamous assassins? Yahya Kazim was tried at the Old Bailey on the 19th of June, 1972, and charged with the attempted murder of Abda al-Naif and with intent to cause grievous bodily harm to Lamia al-Naif. He pleaded not guilty to all charges, and the jury found him not guilty. With no gun on his person, no bullets in his pocket, no mask on his face, no fingerprints anywhere at the scene, and no witness able to confirm whether Kazim had fired, let alone held, a gun, he was found not guilty and walked free. Six years later, on Sunday the 9th of July 1978, outside of the five-star Intercontinental Hotel on London's Park Lane, as the exiled Iraqi general hopped in a taxi and headed home to his beloved wife, he was cut down by a hail of bullets, one of which blasted a hole in the back of his head, and he died the very next day. This time, his Iraqi assassins were professionals, and his death sentence, having been reportedly ordered by the ambitious vice president of Iraq, whose name was Saddam Hussein. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. A big thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who get exclusive access to lots of secret and often rather sexy Murder Mile stuff, as well as a personal thank you from me. They are Susie Brace, Lena Cho, Roger M, The Quiet One, and someone who calls himself Gunga Din. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hello. 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 <laughs> Welcome, Medmar listeners. Welcome to Extra Mile. I always say this just in case he's. Uh, someone's first episode. Uh, this is Extra Mile, the extra part at the end of each episode. It's unscripted, unedited. There's no music, there's no sound effects. This is just me talking about the episode that we've just uh, been listening to. Uh, there's lots of noise. That's the bin men going past. Someone's got out a really annoying bit of garden machinery and it's really pissed me off. Um, but yeah, it's all unscripted, uh, and I'm just going to talk you through the episode that we've just uh, listened to. Um, and I'm going to have a quick drink, drink of coffee. That 
thing is really annoying, isn't it? Hopefully it'll go away. Uh, so, um, that was the um, story of uh, Abda al-Razak Saeed al-Naif. Hope you appreciate that, that I've been practicing. Um, I really hate it when you listen to an episode and someone just, they just haven't done the research. They just haven't, even simple things like learning someone's name. Like, I hate it when people get my name wrong, and people do get my name wrong. But, especially if you're a true crime podcaster, I think it's your priority number one, is to make sure you get the names and locations just right before you go into anything else because you great people listening to these episodes you kind of rely on us to having done the research for you first we're there to entertain you to inform you and i don't think you can trust us if for example i was listening to uh, an unnamed episode of someone's podcast recently i won't say what case they were discussing the first half an hour was taken up with them waffling about what they'd had for dinner uh, and then they had to get into the bit about the the case that they were meant to be discussing discussing they let out a little sigh almost as if they were bored of the idea that they had to discuss true crime don't become a true crime podcast if you don't like true crime right and then one of them you could hear them grab a sheet of paper and they went okay so uh we're gonna discuss a case of a man whose name is jeffrey Damer, I'll call him Damer, yeah, Damer, I think it's Damer, yeah, it's definitely Damer, and it's like, how can you trust them, if they can't get the freaking name right, how can you trust them, so uh, I sat down for quite a while, as soon as I knew I was going to do this case, I started going through, and thank God uh, for lots of different websites that help you pronounce different things because that's been very useful so i was going through to work out how to pronounce uh abda al razak saeed al naif uh i hope to anyone out there who does speak arabic i hope i got that near i tried really hard uh and obviously i was looking because he's iraqi and because he uh his family originated in morocco as well he's he's iraqi moroccan so I was trying to work out whether there was a difference between uh, Iraqi Arabic and Moroccan Arabic. Uh, also with um, Yaya Kazim, Yaya Kazim, uh, trying to get that right as well. So I've tried really hard with this one, and it's it's been difficult. You know me, I, I as a dyslexic, I struggle a lot with words. So to trying to say the assassination of Abda Al Razik Said Al uh, Al, oh, I see, I almost got it. Then I don't always get it right. Al naif it's difficult to say thank you to everyone in the middle east for creating such complicated names it really is appreciated oh god i remember years ago before like when i was about god i was about 18 19 when i first came to london i got a job it was meant to be a job as a copywriter but it wasn't it was a copy editor which basically meant uh, at associated press newspapers basically i was given a stack of photographs which were being digitized and basically, I, I had to go through the photographs and digitise the picture and then on it, type in who was in the photos. And sometimes I got lucky. Sometimes, like one, one week, I got all of Alfred Hitchcock's stuff and I love Alfred Hitchcock. So that was great. And it was kind of like I could, I literally didn't need to look at the notes. I was like, yeah, yeah, this is Alfred Hitchcock on the set of Frenzy in 1972. This is in Covent Garden, blah, blah, blah. So for me, it was really good fun. But then one week I was given the entire Saudi royal family. 
and there was like a hundred people in the photograph and all of them are Al Al Aziq Said Al Muhammad Al Al it's just like oh my god I lost the will to live <laughs> it would take me like two hours to do one photo so but I'm sure people in the Middle East say the same about our names I'm sure they look at our names and go how the flip do you spell that <laughs> so I enjoyed that episode uh, I think I had a lot of fun writing it um, you can hear a coot having a little tantrum outside there. I uh, had a lot of fun with it, really enjoyed it. I uh, added in some extra voices. Uh, probably there, there'll be a big thank you in here to my friend Amy. I think she might be providing a voice for this. Uh, I'm recording this and she's going to do the voice, but she might not, So if only if she's got time. So she might have done the voice of Lamia, or I might just keep my one in if it's not too horrific. But I enjoyed having fun with the voices. Uh, I hope people in the Middle East aren't offended by it. Um, so the story of the assassination of uh, Abd al-Razak Saeed al-Naif. Thank you very much. Um, I stumbled across that by mistake. I was in the archives uh, when I was taking that month off to do the research, extra research, all for this. I was eager for an assassination to crop in somewhere in the story because obviously we've had a family uh family mass murder and then we had a racist incident last week and i was keen for kind of because i know what's coming up i wanted there to be something different so i thought an assassination might be quite interesting started looking through the archive and bingo there it was and even better it was on bryanston square as well which we've already dealt with uh on uh the uh, blackout ripper um now i was a bit of bit curious about this about whether we'd actually get some good information because it's assassination uh diplomatic figures political figures i thought well it's highly likely highly likely these are either going to be filed away for at least 100 years or they're going to be entirely top secret uh but i was lucky just open there was the file it was open it had been open for about two years um there's one part of the file that i couldn't get access to i think that's where all the really sensitive stuff is but i there was loads in it really there wasn't any uh crime scene photos unfortunately but there was some really interesting stuff in there lots of statements everyone had given statements about what happened and it gave me a real insight into who each of these people were um uh, so yeah no that was good fun um so, uh, what happened to uh, Kazim, 58-year-old, uh, five foot three, little Kazim? Uh, no photos of him, unfortunately, so I had to base it on descriptions that people gave me of him. No idea. No idea what happened to him. I've searched. I would have thought that uh, Yaya Kazim would be easy to track down, but it's it's a relatively common name. Uh, it's kind of like, it's it's like... Robert Robinson or Robert Jones or something. So uh, it's, yeah. Uh, so it's hard to track down. So whether he stayed in the country or whether he left, we don't actually know. Um, but here's some th things that uh, I thought I'd uh, mention about this episode that uh, isn't mentioned in the episode. For people first time to Extra Mile, I throw in things that you won't have heard. Because sometimes there's no time. There's no. I like to keep an episode down to its fighting weight. And sometimes you can have too much information. So... As we know, uh, during the early 1960s, uh, Abda, uh, with with Iraq being our ally in the wars, uh, in the years after World War II, 
Uh, now, I mentioned this. Abda was trained in uh, by British intelligence officers at an undisclosed military base in Uckfield, Sussex. I've tried to find the base. There is one there. It's demolished. Uh, we don't know whether that's the one. And we don't know exactly who trained him. This is all hush-hush. But this was the interesting thing. If uh, an Iraqi uh, officer was brought over here and trained in Iraqi intelligence and we're their ally and then he organised a, a coup of Iraq basically yeah it was five five to six years later was this organised by the British government did they have something to do with that bloodless coup in Iraq we've seen it many times that the western allies are very eager to dive into Iraq especially when there's oil uh, and uh, sometimes a bloodless coup or, or do you know Western governments have been known to um, get involved in coups in other countries. So uh could be likely. Um, whether that's in the other document, we don't know. That's probably a top secret thing. So uh, who knows? Uh, one other thing that wasn't put into the story is that uh, although Kazim and Abda met about a year before, about six months into their meeting, uh, Kazim went to Spain for six months, about six months. Now, he was an international lawyer, uh, so he would travel around a lot. But what is said is that it was in Spain, in his many travels to Spain, it's there that he received his payment uh, for the assassination of Abda, and that he would get his information and that he would meet the assassins. Uh, now, we know very little about his trip to Spain at all. Uh also very little about what he did during that period but this is what's really interesting so uh when kazim was on remand uh he was at Man remand at uh, brixton prison for a while they had him in wandsworth for a bit as well these are all all in south london uh given up to the trial uh kazim had to share a cell uh with another prisoner whose name was, come on, Michael, where have you put it here? Not Michael Smith. Uh, John Albert Hutton. Now, John Albert Hutton had been serving uh, four years for burglary. Oh, no, he'd got, he got, uh, serving four years, he got three offences uh, for receiving stolen goods, including, he's a major criminal, including a stolen tarpaulin, some wine, and a carpet. Right. <laughs> So he was sharing, he was sharing a cell with Kazim, who was suspected of organising an attempted assassination of the ex-exiled Iraqi prime, uh, prime minister. Two of them sharing a cell together, and apparently Kazim, as a nervous little man, obviously he's in prison, he's not really used to it. Coots having a fight. They won't shut up. A uh, nervous little man in prison. He would talk a lot. He would try and talk his way out of things. And he kind of he kind of became slightly a friend with John Albert Hutton. So, another prisoner who's in the same prisoner, uh, who was serving uh, offences for theft, shop-breaking, burglary, possession of stolen items, assault and armed robbery, who was also the son-in-law of John Albert Hutton, a guy by the name of Michael Smith, he went to the police and he said, look, my father-in-law has been spending uh, like the last month or so in the cell with Kazim. Kazim is a blabbermouth. He talks all the time. He's basically told my father-in-law everything about this case. 
and my father-in-law has literally every night he would go down and he'd write down everything that Kazim said he would write down all of the details in a little exercise book now inside the archive file it was really interesting right at the back was the exercise book so uh, I've taken some photos. I'll post those online on the various uh, forums so you can have a look at them. People who don't listen to Extra Mile won't know what these photos are. People who do listen to Extra Mile will know exactly what they are. So uh, basically what they did was in the book it said that uh, Kazim was an international lawyer. He was paid £100,000, so this is 1970s, so a hell of a lot of money, in Swiss francs. It was paid into a Spanish bank account uh, about a month earlier. And then he went to Spain, as agreed, uh, to go and discuss with the police, uh, with the police, uh, with the organisers about the assassination. Now, the police were unable to trace that bank account, uh, but they did use that evidence in the trial. The problem is, it's it's an exercise book uh, from a prisoner. Uh, and actually two prisoners, because actually Michael Smith, who was the uh, son-in-law, had actually said, uh, police, if we give you all this information, can you help get us off some of these charges? So basically there was a bit of to and fro about it. And the police were like, is this real or is it not real? They read it. There was some interesting stuff inside the exercise book. It was used in trial, but... God, that thing's going off again. That's really annoying. Um... um whether they could believe it as evidence is unknown. It, I, I had to look through the file and I really couldn't see whether it was used properly uh, in the court uh, in the court trial or not. Um, I'm going to slightly close over a door so we can get rid of that buzzy thing. It's a little bit better. Um, so, yeah, anyway. Anyway, I hope that was an interesting case. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, now, each... each whoa. Almost knocked over my laptop. Each week, as I mentioned, uh, we'll be doing a uh, listener Q&A in this section. So you can ask me any questions at all. Um, message me through any of the social media forums at all. Uh, ask me any questions and I'll try and answer them here. So some of these people have tweeted me these or via Facebook. So uh, here's some questions. First question is from uh, Sammy Sam Sam. I take it that's not your real name, Sammy Sam Sam, but uh, hello, Sammy Sam Sam. Sammy Sam Sam asks, how how do you create? Hang on, uh, how do you create the noises and soundscapes on Murder Mile? Good question. Thank you very much, Sammy Sam Sam. Um, so, as most of you know, hopefully you all do know, or you, or maybe you don't. Um, all of the noises, all of the sounds, pretty much everything you hear on Murder Mile is created by me. Um, so when I say I'm standing on this street, you are literally listening to that street for real. It's the proper street. I go out. I don't have any fancy equipment. I just have my little phone. I stand there. Hopefully it's a windless day. I record. I try and get sounds of traffic and people chatting. And then what I do is I create a little soundscape. So I take different pieces of that street and try and condense into like the 15 20 30 seconds that we use try and condense all of those sounds into one little segment so you get so you really get a sense of the whole street within 15 10 15 20 seconds um the sound effects i create myself as well so uh i can't really discuss the episode you've just listened to because i haven't edited it yet so i've no idea how i'm going to edit it or what sounds i'm going to use but in the jack adrian tracks one um 
what did I what did I do in there? Like uh, the scene when he's in the house uh, and he's going a bit mad. If you if you listen to the sounds, you'll hear it coming through. Hopefully, if you're using good good earphones. Really, if you're listening to Murder Mile, please use good earphones. There's someone someone messaged me recently and said, oh, I didn't realise there was music and sounds in Murder Mile. And it's like, of course there is. Don't listen to Murder Mile if, with crappy earphones in a noisy place. Because there's little, there's little nuggets of little sounds and lovely little things that are thrown in there just for people to listen to. There's little jokes in there as well, little things that are hidden, and they're tiny, and so you really need good, you really got to have good earphones for this. If you can, don't need to be expensive. I literally, to edit it and to listen to podcasts, I have a pair of £7 ones in a ear earphones that I bought in Asda. Yeah, they're seven quid, but they sit in my ear, right into my ears, and I can hear everything really nicely. Um, so with Murder Mile, I try and create all of my own sounds. Uh, I'd started it years ago when I used to do my own my own live plays. I used to perform to soundscape, so I'd cr- create sounds of like, you know, flies buzzing. The sounds of flies buzzing is harder to create than you think because there are very few flies who actually buzz. There's a blue bottle, but it's hard to get blue bottles without putting down uh, rotting meat because that's what attracts them. So uh, to create the sound of uh, buzzing flies, uh, I would get a wasp and I would uh, agitate it which is not a good thing to do especially you know, making a wasp very angry but do you know what if you uh, loop the sound quite a few times it gets quite a good buzzing sound so um, footsteps uh, bird calls I've got loads of literally uh, what have I got on my phone at the moment this is this was just I walk around town all the time and if I hear things I record it and I think mm, that would be good um What's on my phone at the moment? So on the phone at the moment... Oh, not much. Foreign radio. I think I must delete it a lot. Yeah. Normally I go around town, I, I record buses, I record people talking. Uh, knowing that uh, I'm going to need Iraqi voices, I'll, today I'll be going into town to find uh, an Iraqi cafe and I'll probably sit down and record some people's voices. I've got loads of Middle Eastern, I've got some African ladies. Uh, just things like that just anything that works uh, bottle smashes are always good to have uh, some sounds obviously I can't get access to uh, I can't create like gunshots which would have been used in this episode so I use uh, free sound archives there's really there's a really good one out there called uh, what's it called freesound.org and you can log into it uh, it's free there's some sound designers like myself out there who put up good stuff, really good sounds, and they work really hard. There's some fucking idiots out there who, if you see anything on there that says alien followed by a word like alien screwdriver, alien sofa, alien gun, yeah, what that means is basically they've messed around with oh, just some effects on Audacity, and because it sounds alien, they go, oh, well, it's an alien door, it's an alien car, it's just, oh, just idiots, oh, but there's some people out there who really, like, they get realistic sounds, uh, so sometimes I can get some really good stuff out there, but yeah, most of the time I try to do it, uh, I'm very keen with Murder Mile not to overdo it, so there are a couple of podcasts out there, big ones made by big companies, I won't say their names, and I, th- I think they overuse sounds, and it it pisses, it pisses me off. I'll be honest. I really hate it when you're pandered to by, by a podcaster. So, 
because um, I'm allowed to say this, I'm, I'm a podcast listener as well, so I base Murder Mile on what really annoys me about other people, and I try not to make the same mistakes. So I hate it when someone goes, uh, Bob walked into the room, the door opened, and then you hear a, Bob walked in. Bob picked up a glass. I hate that. I hate when people tell you what's happening and then you have to hear the sound. I, I think what I try to do is give you a sense of the world. So um, unless it's really essential, like today, you know, um, it's useful for effect. Gunshots fired. You hear gunshots. Yep, that makes sense. Um, but what I try to do is make make the world kind of more realistic, give it a kind of extra dimension to it. So when I'm talking about a street, you hear the street now sound. If we're in someone's living room, you might hear the kind of the hum of the telly in the background, do you know, or a radio playing or... Do you know, uh, if we're in a, like, um, one of the episodes we were in a newspaper office, so you could hear uh, a typewriter in the background. Do you know, I, I wouldn't say the man wrote a letter, he was typing, do, 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 do. What I try to do is just give you a sense of the world. It kind of adds an extra dimension for you. Uh, so I try, I try and have fun with it as well. I think I, I've had fun with the last, the first two episodes, so hopefully... When I sit down to edit this one, I'll have fun with this one as well. I think as I'm enjoying, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna enjoy editing the scenes to do with uh, the conversations between Kazim and Abda, because I wasn't gonna write them as conversations, but it made sense because because uh, Kazim was just so annoying I, that I really the second I wrote the words Abda is Kazim. I knew I wanted that to be in about three or four times. So the, so you as an audience just go, God, he's annoying. <laughs> so and hopefully this is why I say use good earphones, because uh, hopefully what I'm going to try and do with this is have it on. I've tried this a couple of times and what I've been using it a lot recently. You might have noticed it, hopefully not too much. But what I'm using is left and right ear on stereo. So what I might do is have uh, Kazim on the left ear and Abda on the right ear when they're talking so it sounds like a, it sounds like a real conversation I'm looking forward to, I'll have some fun with that uh, so thank you Sammy Sammy Sam 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 uh, next question is from Philly D lots of people <laughs> I don't think they're using their real name now, I don't know whether Philly D is a man or a woman it could either be Philip or Philida or Philip 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 Philippa not Philida is Philida even a name I don't know um, uh, Philida, he, she asks, or, oh, uh, whatever the non-gender neutral is for that. Digging myself into a hole there. Uh, Philly D asks, uh, where do you get the music from? Good question. Uh, okay. Most of the music is by Cult With No Name. As you know, I've known Cult With No Name for, God, about 11 years now, probably. Uh, so I know Johnny and Eric really well. Um became friends with Johnny and Eric by uh, going to see their show. I mostly know Johnny really through his wife, who I used to work with his wife at the BBC, and that's how I got to know Johnny, which is how I got to know Eric. Uh, I go and see Cult With No Name a lot, support, they're always supporting their shows because they're fantastic. Um, when I was doing my first play, I asked them to do, if I could borrow some music from their first album, no, second album, uh, so I borrowed a track called Adrenaline to open up uh, my show, 
went really well. I used some of their other music as well, went really well as well. So I just kept asking them for music. So when I started Murder Mile, the first thing I did was just go, guys, can can I use some of your music? And they were like, yeah, help yourself. Use whatever you like. So opening track, the very first track, the very first intro is a track called Win Some, Lose Some. The Murder Mile theme is called Man in a Bag, which is about that... Um, what was his name? Someone, uh, Gareth Jones, the uh, British spy, inverted commas, uh, who was found inside a carrier bag inside his own bath. This was a couple of years ago. A couple of uh, podcasters, They Walk Among Us, did uh, uh, an episode about him as well. But that's what the story, that's what the song is about. Uh, and also try and use their music throughout as well. So they've got about eight or nine albums at the moment, and I throw in some cut with no name every so often. But to mix it up, um, because I do use music from uh, a free music archive, which is out there, but I've realised now that there's a lot of true crime podcasts out there that you tend to use the same 10 songs. And I'm sure if you're a podcast listener who listens to, you know, I don't listen to that much anymore because I just don't have time, but I know there's people out there who, who, who subscribe to 200 300 podcasts and they can they just just listen to it all day long so i'm sure you guys hear the same 10 songs again and again it must get tiresome so i uh each, each time i start a new episode i deliberately go searching far and wide for as much new music as i can find and i even though there's some uh music composers out there who are very good for podcasters i won't say their names so everyone else doesn't go searching for them and using them but what I'm starting to do now is to find uh, other musical people who are just really good. Like their music might not be right for a podcast, but if you can put it into the right way into a podcast, it can work really well. Or you can use parts of it. Uh, so I do a lot of that. But also what I find important, another bin truck going past. This is really weird. There's a third bin truck going past today. Ugh. Um maybe they're just not doing a good job maybe they forget bins idiots um very noisy very noisy very, very sparkly i'm starting to sound like rain man very sparkly very sparkly because i'm not wearing my underwear very sparkly uh, so yeah uh, that makes me laugh it reminds me of my mum sometimes uh, when mum could still talk mum was going through because of her dementia she was going through a phase where she was slightly rain manish <laughs> me and my brother it's a, you have to have a black sense of humour when you deal with people with dementia but we'd, we'd often go be, be sparkly be sparkly <laughs> she'd get very distracted by things that were sparkly um, so uh, the other music for the podcast boat going past there uh, that's got a really bad engine get that engine serviced um, the other music that I use in the podcast that uh, you'll notice at the start, so before the first interstitial, so after the introduction, when I, I'm introducing the location and before it goes, when I'm introducing a location, uh, such as here, I was talking about Bryanston Square. I don't know whether I'll use one in here. Maybe I will. Um, but what I do is I use real buskers. So around London, there's always loads of buskers. Uh, so what I tried to do is record the sounds of them busking in a real location and use that in the podcast. It adds as a nice kind of... It helps with the flow of the narrative, but also it draws you into the world. Uh, 
and sometimes it can be really useful. Sometimes just recording them can really help with an episode. So with the last episode that we did, the Brian Alexander Robinson one about the uh, uh, about the nineteen year old Jamaican who came to the UK and was uh, you know murdered uh, Johnny Howard in a, a race, what was believed to be a racist attack. Um, obviously, because he was from Jamaica, I was desperate for some reggae music. Now in a lot of these music archives out there, the reggae music is absolutely shit. Really, is awful. It's a it's a, it's it's a white man white man reggae. Do you know UB forty ish? It's kind of not reggae at all. It's kind of very unauthentic. Uh, I was lucky in one of the music archives in the sound archive. I found someone who'd recorded uh, a reggae performer in Kingston on the street and that was really useful i put that in that was like that was really useful that was i think that's when i'm talking about his uh brian alexander johnson uh, robinson's past when his mother is about to abandon him i use it in the background there and it's i think it's quite effective but when i was outside tottenham court road a couple of weeks ago uh i was filming the video for the the first episode of this season and there was some uh reggae performers setting up and so i started recording them uh, initially the first song they did <coughs> wasn't going to be useful because that was they were doing uh, a, a reggae version of uh, Land, uh, Land Down Under by Men at Work which I'm sure everyone in Australia knows that song because uh, to my Australian friends I always say that's your national anthem um, so it's kind of an Aussie song done in reggae style it was good fun but it didn't really suit me and then after that they started playing uh God, was it? I think it was No Woman, No Cry by Bob Marley. And I was like, bingo, perfect. That's exactly what I need. So uh, sometimes it's very useful. Uh, one actually cropped up for the Blackout Ripper episode. I was standing outside Tottenham Court Road Tube Station again. That's where I, I meet all the people who come on my tour. Uh, I was waiting for the tour to turn up because I always turn up early. There was a man. He wasn't sitting on the floor. He was kind of half slumped on the floor. But, and he got a clarinet out. And it's weird, he looked really messy and he looked like he was drunk, but his clarinet playing was really nice. Uh, so while I was waiting, I had a couple of minutes, so I started recording um, the man in the clarinet. The man on the clarinet, not in a clarinet, that would be weird. Uh, and it was really nice. It was just really nice, really nicely played, and he was playing... Uh, uh, summertime, just summertime, and the weather. Which I, I I listened to that and I thought, oh, hopefully that'll come in handy. Because I'd only got about a minute's worth before someone came over and said, "Can you tell me the way to the British Museum?" Which I get all the time. Uh, but I put it into the Blackout Ripper episodes, and it came became really useful as a a kind of a signifier for Piccadilly Circus. If you listen to the Blackout Ripper episodes, you'll hear wind and rain because it's uh it all took place in winter but whenever it looks like the blackout ripper or prostitute who is going to murder is kind of nearby or is about to be picked up you'll hear and it kind of echoes into the distance and i, I enjoyed that I think that's one of my favourite things with the Blackout Ripper was just those little details, which is why I always say get good earphones, good earphones. Otherwise, you're going to miss all you're going to miss all these lovely little things. Um, so I've got one more question. Actually, got two more questions. Uh, <laughs> one more question from Alice Gray. Thank you, Alice. <laughs> that 
very much must be your real name rather than all the others who used uh, nom de plumes. I like the word nom de plume. That's very good. Nom de plume. Uh, Alice, simple question, asks, what what's next for Murderwell? Well, that's a nice simple question. I can very much an- answer that. Uh, more series. Uh, I know that if you're podcast listeners, you're probably fed up with people taking like, um, I, I know I just took a month off, but a month is month is fine. Some people taking like one of my favourite podcasts out there is take they've taken over a year off now. Very frustrating. A year off. I, I think by the t- and they they won't be back for about another, another six months. And it's like the momentum's gone. You can't do that. So if you're a podcaster, you have to podcast. You have to have to podcast. And if you haven't got the time to podcast, tell people about it. Just say I, I'm only going to do one a month. And then people are there for it. They're they're like, I look forward to each month. But you've got to be consistent. So Murder Mile is going to be consistent. He says, touch wood, I could get run over, I could get killed. Um, So I'm going to power through uh, this season, season two. This will take us up to January-ish. Then I'll take a month off to do research. I've I've got to get the boat out of the water and paint paint its bottom. Uh, um, and get the boat surveyed so yeah that's January Uh, and then I'll take a small break do some research I'm already researching season three already and then season three will be back and that will take us through to kind of June in summer 2019 and then I'll take a month off again and then that'll take us to winter 2019 and we'll just keep going I don't have any plans to go anywhere really Uh, I enjoy Murder Mile it keeps me very entertained uh, I'm not still not making <laughs> still not making anything really. Uh, thank you to everyone who's my Patreon supporters. That really does help. That is kind of all that money goes towards uh, payment for my website uh, and the uh, all the different. There's a lot of different uh, facilities I have to use, like newspaper ar- ar- newspaper archives, uh, census reports, different things like that. So it all pays towards that. So all of your money really does go into the research for this. Honestly, I don't spend it on beer. I don't spend all of it on beer. Um, so uh, that's the plan. I'm just going to keep doing Murder Mile. Maybe I might bring out a Murder Mile book. Who knows? See if I've got time for that. Um, I'm getting quicker at making Murder Mile episodes now. But the problem is, because they're getting quicker, uh, they're also getting longer as well. Uh, because I'm realising I've got more time to write. Mm, I, need, I think I need to curb these down to about 40, 45 minutes a piece. Maybe half an hour. Um, maybe, I don't know, a Murder Mile TV series could be good. (coughs) Um, uh, but yeah, no, this is just not going to be a a here today, gone tomorrow episode. It's not going to fall by the wayside like many other podcasts have. There's been some great podcasts out there and you know what? I totally understand it. People jump on it and think it will be a great thing to do and it is really good fun to do but you have to commit to it you have to have time to commit you can't just sit down and go i'm going to do an episode and then next week you realize it takes you like even a fast one even a fast episode you're still going to be even if it's just someone like me wittering like at this point here wittering and then putting out an episode uh, you still got to do all the bits and pieces to go with it. It's still going to be about five or ten hours, easily. Uh, and if it's wittering like this, you're going to be you're going to be editing as well, especially with noise in the background. So yeah, um, Murder Mile's going to be here for a long time. 
yeah and we're gonna have fun i'm gonna keep changing up the episodes i probably won't expand more at the moment into new areas i think soho's good i've got my paddington and uh king's cross euston areas which i'll branch out to when i feel the need to when the story dictates out but at the moment i'm really i'm still finding lots of stories set in soho so I just really want to stick with that. I think that's my niche. I think the second I go too far out of my remit, then I become every other podcast, which is about murder in general in the United Kingdom. I think my, I think my, I think what makes mine special is the fact that it is contained. It's, it's a square mile. So you're gonna get you're gonna get stories you've never heard of in your life, which hopefully for you is interesting. Do you know, I can't think of anything worse than. Do you know, if you were to download an episode from me and go, oh, I've heard of that one. I've heard that about a hundred times. What I want is for you to go, OK, I have no idea what that's about. To come with it with no preconceptions at all. No idea what it's about. No idea what the ending is. But even better, you can't Google it. You can't sit down and go, like Jack Adrian Tratzer. If you Google that now, you'll get a couple of pieces in there. A couple of small pieces which are incorrect. And you'll get the transcript of... Um, the episode because i put all my transcripts up there for people who uh, are learning to speak english we've got many overseas listeners who use murder mile as a good way to learn to speak english so uh uh who are who heard of me through luke's english podcast fantastic podcast of which i've done about eight now um so my transcripts are up there for them uh but yeah murder mile is going to be here for a long time and uh, I'll just keep changing it up and making it interesting. And if you have any suggestions, please do. Um, if you have any questions at all, please email them to me using any of the uh, social media forums. Um, or, do you know, email, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, blah de blah de blah de blah de blah de blah de blah. Uh, I think that's it. I think that's it. Um, that is this episode of murder mile obviously as always i don't know how oh a coot update no idea no idea the little bastards are outside making a flip node of noise literally having fights one of them bounced off my boat today they were fighting that hard that literally one of them just went like that uh another day because coots coots can't fight one of them was running towards uh a rival and what they do is they do a kind of it's like speedy jesus it's like Jesus walking on water at about 100 miles an hour. And it's a little fat, little black duck-like bird with a white cap. And he's running along the water and his little, his little legs are going really fast. And he's running fast along the water. And that's all they can do because they, they're flightless birds. But this, this coot was going so fast that he, he had his little wings out and he took off. And for about 15 feet, he took off and I watched him go past my boat. And you could see the look of excitement on his face. And he was as he was like, I'm flying. It was really interesting. It's fantastic just to watch a bird kind of a bird that can't fly actually fly. Uh, so outside, what's interesting, we've got some big fish outside as well. I don't know what they are. Uh, people keep saying they're either perch or tench. And I don't know which is which, but they're big. I would say, I'm holding out my hands now, I would say they're probably a foot and a half long. Yeah, it's probably a foot and a half long, maybe, yeah, close to two feet long. They're huge. 
and you can see them swimming underneath the boat there's some loads of little tiny fish as well i don't know what they are they are they, are they sticklebacks they look like sticklebacks i don't really know fish but the other ones are huge oh god i bet they taste nice uh, anyway <laughs> that was murder mile for this week uh, as always i don't know how to sign off so uh what am i gonna do should i just sign off should I just sign off like that i'll just go right okay okay you hang up first okay and then i'll hang up okay after three three two one you're still there you're still there why are you still listening i you meant to hang up you hang up first and then i'll hang up okay ready three two one Go on, go, go, hang up. This is like the end of Ferris Bueller. Thank God I'm not in the shower like Ferris Bueller was. Right, we're definitely going to go now because I need to have a wee wee and I need to have a drink as well. Uh, not a drink as in a, a boozy drink, as in a, 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 a cup of tea, a nice cup of tea. Cool, okay, so after three. Three, two, one. Bye-bye. <laughs>